The following message is brought to you by Morgan Hill Bible Church. For all things MHBC, connect with us on social media and check us out online at mhbible.org. Good morning again. Welcome to Morgan Hill Bible Church. So great to have you here today. If you have a Bible this morning, you want to follow along, you can open it to the book of John, and we're going to be in chapter 15. John chapter 15. John, if you're new to the church or Christianity, John is the fourth book in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. And we've been going through a series, and we're going to be in John 15 today. I wanted to say thank you to Ricky, who did an amazing job last week in John 14, as we looked at Jesus being the way, the truth, and the life. By the way, if you didn't know, um, Ricky this summer is celebrating his seventh year on staff here at Morgan Hill Bible Church, which means that he will be going on sabbatical for most of the summer. And so that will start in two weeks. He'll preach for us in two weeks, and he'll give us a little update. But if you're wondering in like August, like why haven't I seen Ricky in months? Is everything okay? Yes, it's okay. He, he's, he'll be on sabbatical for a few months over the summer. So we're excited for that for him and for his family. We are wrapping up this morning in John 15, the seventh of our series, looking at the I am statements in the Gospel of John. These are statements that Jesus constructs and gives in different audiences, but almost always pointing back to the Old Testament and fulfilling scripture and ultimately pointing to the reality of who he is and not only who he is, but how who he is changes who we are if we are followers of Jesus. And today we're looking at the last of those in John chapter 15, starting at verse one. Well, um, like you can probably imagine, a lot of my week-to-week kind of workflow, a lot of it is based around message and sermon preparation, right? Like I hope that's not news to you. I just don't get up here and wing it every Sunday, right? A lot of my time and energy, and I'm always like one, two, three sermons out, right? Like I know what I'm going to be preaching on, and there's ideas floating through my head all the time as I'm driving and, you know, kind of grabbing ideas. And so there's kind of blocks in my schedule where I sit down and say, right, this is the time I have where I'm going to really do some preparation and write for Sunday sermons. And there was a time a few weeks ago, it was late in the afternoon that I was sitting down and I was writing. And you know, like those times when you're like, okay, I have to sit down and be creative and have good original thoughts. Then you sit down and you're like, nothing's coming. Right? Like when you tell yourself you need to be productive, that's the worst thing because you're not going to be productive if you tell yourself you really have to be right now. And, I, and I'm sitting in my office and I'm just like, man, it's not, nothing is hitting. The ideas aren't flowing. And it was late in the afternoon and I had to stay late that night. I had a couple of meetings in the evening. So I was like, you know what? I'm going to go somewhere else. Right? I don't think I'm the only one. Sometimes if we just change location, right? Go somewhere else, kind of like mentally we can kind of reset and ideas start flowing. And so I go down to Tacos and Mecca. I grab a super burrito and man, the ideas start flowing. Man, super burritos are the key to unlocking great ideas. I'm convinced of it. I'm like, oh man, I just opened my Bible. I have my notebook. I'm writing things. I'm like, this is great. This is great. And then, um, then there was this, I was like, oh, I, I know there's this other verse in the Bible that helps back this up. But like most of you, like I know it's in the Bible, but I don't remember the exact book and chapter and verse number. So I'm like, okay, I got it. I'll just look it up. And I pull out my phone. I put it in Safari. I type in kind of the, the gist of the verse and hit go. And I just get the spinning wheel and nothing happens. Because for whatever reason, we love Morgan Hill. And I love Morgan Hill, but for whatever reason, the cell phone service here is terrible. It's absolutely atrocious. You'd think we live like not in Silicon Valley or something, right? The tech center of the world. And it was a few, a few like minutes later, I had another idea of like an illustration. So I go to Google it and it's like the same spinning wheel. Right, So these, these pieces of technology that all of us carry in our pockets are amazing devices, 
right? You've probably heard, and it's true, that the computing power in these is more powerful than what sent NASA, the astronauts, to the moon decades ago, right? Extremely powerful, but if they're not connected to a network, they don't really do what they're functioned to do, right? If there's not a network connection or a Wi-Fi connection, it kind of is, it's just kind of a meaningless thing, right? You can't really use it with how it's supposed to be used, but when it has and maintains that connection is when it's useful for what it was built for. Jesus today uses that same idea of the importance of maintaining a connection, but of course, he's not using cell phones as his example. So he leans in to his illustration that would have been predominant and totally understood by how all of his audience in how we can stay connected to something. Chapter 15 of John, verse 1. Jesus says this, I am the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. I am, that's our seventh and final statement, I am the true vine. The context of this is the same as if you were here last year, but if you weren't, it's, this is the last supper, the, the final night before Jesus is betrayed and taken ultimately to his death on the cross. And so the audience here, unique to some of them, where it's a mixed audience, a lot of these I am statements are addressed to the Pharisees as well as the followers of Jesus. This one is intimate. It's his disciples as they're gathered mere hours before he's to go to the cross. And Jesus makes this statement, I am the true vine. Now, why does he add in there true? Right? He could have just said, I am the vine. What, why is he saying true? Because what he's signifying is, is I am the fulfillment of something that has been coming all along. And the Israelites, the, this audience, his disciples were all Jewish. And so they would have gotten right away who Jesus is talking about when he's talking about the vine. When you look at the Old Testament, particularly in the prophetic books, so it's like Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel through the end of your Old Testament, this theme of Israel being connected or being the vine or the vineyard of God flows throughout almost every single book. And some it's over and over and over again. For one example, that makes it very clear. Isaiah chapter five, verse seven says this, for the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. This vine imagery was synonymous with Israel's life. The vine kind of represented them and their country. Similar to, uh, someone made this illustration in a book I was reading, which I found kind of helpful. Think of, in America, in the United States, we would identify, you could say something like, oh yeah, I represent the stars and the stripes. And no one would think like, you represent stars? Like, what are you talking about? Like, we get, that's a reference to the flag, meaning I identify as a citizen of the United States of America. Similar to them, they could say like, oh, I represent the vine. And they would have understood you are claiming to be a part of the nation of Israel. And so what Jesus is proclaiming is what Israel's role was supposed to be, how God intended for them to be the place and the venue of which people established and connected a relationship with God. That venue has shifted from a people group to a person sin, and that person is Jesus Christ. That he is now the focal point in which connection, relationship with God now revolves and comes through him. You don't have a relationship with God by being a part of the group of people, by being a part of Israel, but only by being a part of Jesus. He's signifying that the temple, which was the physical location in the land of Israel, where, where religious worship centered, that the worship of God was no longer centered in a physical place. But the worship of God was now centered in any place that honors and exalts and worships Jesus and who he is. And so this morning, as Jesus claims to be the vine, I want us to look at three increases in our lives that should be true if Jesus is the vine. 
Three increases as his disciples this morning. If you're a follower of Jesus, this is for us. If you're a follower of Jesus, three increases that should be true in our lives if we are connected to this true vine being Jesus. Let's read again verse one and verse two. I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruits. The first increase that Jesus wants in our lives is increased fruitfulness. That Jesus desires from every follower of him increased fruitfulness in our lives. Now, I want to make sure as we start out here that we we see this right away, that fruitfulness flows from being connected to the vine. It doesn't earn you a spot on the vine. Right? Fruitfulness is from connected to. It happens because we're connected. It doesn't earn us a spot on the vine. Jesus makes this clear in verse eight. By this, my father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples, not and so earn the right to be my disciples, right? It's important that we make sure we understand that, that the works that we're talking about flow from a relationship with Jesus. These aren't the things to do to get a relationship with Jesus. But he's saying, once you are connected to the vine, once you have this established relationship with Jesus, that's only come through faith in what he's done for you. Once you have this, his desire is that you would increase in fruitfulness in your life. Now, what, what is meant here? By fruitfulness, what does Jesus want to see more of in our lives? Well, biblically speaking, most often when the New Testament talks about fruitfulness in our lives, it's another way of speaking of of character growth or spiritual maturity becoming more like Jesus. The the clearest passage on this is a well-known one that you maybe even are thinking of right now as we talk about fruit in Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 and 23. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. That that fruitfulness, the things that Jesus desires to see within us is this spiritual growth, character development, looking like Jesus more and more in our lives. I want to make sure that we understand that because we could think that fruitfulness, what Jesus is calling for here, is ministry results, right? And and that's a toxic way of thinking is that if we are connected to Jesus, everything we do in following him will become a success, right? Because we could, if if we think of it in that way, you could think, right, I went to work this week. I, I, I struck up the courage to share my faith with a coworker. I shared with them about Jesus. It was very good. I I was genuine. And I asked, hey, do you want to believe in Jesus? And they looked at me and went, no. Were you unfaithful? Are you not connected to the vine? Because that relationship didn't bear fruit as we have to think of it. No. Not at all. Fruitfulness doesn't mean ministry results. It doesn't mean that everything you do in trying to follow God will prove to be successful as the world would call it success. But fruitfulness has to do with your own character development, maturity, Christ-likeness forming within you. And get this, this is Jesus's constant desire for us. Look again at the second part of verse two. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. See, Jesus sees where you are, and he sees if you're a follower of Jesus. For many of you, that's a short period of time. For many of you, this is decades of your journey. He sees where you are, and you know what he wants from every single follower of Jesus? He wants more. He wants more fruit in your life. He wants more of your life to look like Jesus. He wants more of your character to be formed into the image of God. His desire is for more. And so how does he do that? He does it by pruning. 
He does it by pruning things. Now, this is an example that they would have readily understood. For me, I have to interpret this, right? Because I don't have a green thumb. If it's at all green, it's a very light green thumb, right? But most things I touch kind of die when they're in my yard, right? So, so but, but they would have gotten this in a very agricultural heavy culture that you have to prune things for it to grow. Cutting back of a plant is necessary for long-term growth and fruitfulness for the tree, that you can't just let it grow however, and it won't be healthy. Eventually something bad will happen. But Jesus says we have to prune it and cut it back. Why? So it would bear more fruit. I should have known this would happen the week that I'm preaching on pruning and trees and vines, that something would, of course, happen in my yard. Because that's how God always does it, right? And sometimes the sermon illustrations are too easy. Tuesday afternoon, I get home. Our daughter's doing swim lessons in the afternoon right now. So we get home from swim and we're inside and I look out our front window and we have these two rose, I used to call them rose bushes, but they're more like rose trees. Some of the, the bushes that we have around here, they're, they kind of you know have this little trunk and then these beautiful roses on it. Well, we moved into our house a few months ago and so we didn't do kind of any pruning at the end of last season. And my wife and I, we both love plants, but we have very light green thumbs, if green at all. And so we don't exactly know how big things are supposed to be here. And it was this beautiful, both of them, these beautiful rose bushes, one white, one yellow, full of flowers. And I look out the front yard and both of them are laying entirely on their side, right? The wind had picked up that they had grown to a capacity that they could not maintain and they got blown over. Why? Because I didn't prune them. There was one there that had been pruned and it was sitting there looking all good with the flowers pointing out, like looking at the other two rose bushes, like, ah, I got pruned. I'm good. Right. The other two are laying on their side. So what did I have to do? I had to go out and cut them back so that they could then stand up and be able to sustain themselves. See, by Jesus using this illustration of him pruning things for more, for more growth, for more fruitfulness to happen. It leads us and reminds us of this reality in following God and that spiritual growth will rarely, if ever, feel comfortable. Spiritual growth will rarely, if ever, feel comfortable in our lives. I wish this was like, and to help you grow, I will give you a nice foot massage and give you a delicious cup of coffee and you will grow. I'm like, oh, this is fantastic. Following Jesus is so great, right? But no, the illustration is of, of pruning, of cutting back something that is bearing fruit so that it would grow and bear even more fruit. The following God is rarely comfortable when we are growing in him. Many pastors, and I love this illustration, they point to an example of this is in C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia. And one of the books in the Chronicles of Narnia is called The Voyage of the Dawn Shredder. And in this book, Eustace is the cousin who comes along um, with him. And he's kind of this snotty jerk of a kid at the beginning of the story. And they travel with Prince Caspian and they land on these different islands. And there's this one island they land on. And Eustace goes adventuring on his own and he goes into this cave that's filled with gold. And he starts to put the gold bracelets on himself when they start to get really tight and he looks down and suddenly Eustace realizes that he has been transformed into a dragon, that he has become a dragon. He's ashamed of himself. He's ashamed at who he's become. And the idea is that this is what he was all along. And it's just exposed the rottenness in his heart. But then Aslan, the lion, the Christ figure in the story shows up and asks Eustace, do you want me to do something about this? And he cries, yes. Yes, I need your help. I can't stay like this any longer. So he takes him down to water and he says, take off your own dragon skin. And he tries, but he can't. And so Aslan says, well, I will have to do it for you. And so he takes out his claws and he starts clawing away the dragon skin. And there's this line 
that Eustace says in the story, he says, the very first tear he made was so deep that I thought it had hit right into my heart. That it was deep and painful, but it was the work that Eustace needed to transform him into something far better. See, this is where we can find comfort in life, in hardship, in pain, in affliction, knowing that the gardener is in our lives, wanting to prune us to, for, so that we would bear more fruit. See, we, we, we like to shortcut it, but the reality is, is that growth doesn't happen apart from the pruning of God in our lives. Paul put it this way in Romans chapter 5. He says this, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. Now, what happens, and this is, I'm sure, only true of me, not of you. So this is me being vulnerable. None of you would identify with this. I want character and hope without having to go through the first two, right? If you showed up this morning, we did a survey. How many of you this morning want hope? We'd be like, yeah, I want hope. I'm here for hope. I like hope. How many of you want character? Yes, character. I'm, I'm all about good character. How many of you want endurance? And we're like, maybe? That sounds painful. Maybe endurance. How many of you want suffering? You'd be like, no, I don't want that. Right? But we want, we want what it leads to without having to go through it ourselves. And the path towards hope and character being built with us is the path through suffering and endurance that's built within us. And so if you're going through a difficult circumstance, a difficult season, difficult period in your life, cling to Jesus. He hasn't let go of you, but maybe his pruning knife is very real in your life today. Take hope in the fact that what he's after in your life is just more fruitfulness. He's seen where you are, but he knows where he wants you to be. And what he's doing is what he needs you to develop that character, that growth within you that doesn't feel comfortable, but ultimately will turn out for your good. Jesus continues in this passage, verse three. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine You are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. The second increase that we should see in our lives as we are attached to the vine is we should see increased dependence in our lives. An increased dependence upon God, upon Jesus, should be evidence and should be seen in our lives. This is a word here that starts to come up that we're going to see throughout the rest of our passage. The word is abide, abide or remain, stay attached to something, right? Jesus is saying, abide in me, remain, stay attached to me. And his example is one, that's even easy for us to understand, right? As long as the branch is attached, it can bear fruit. But if it's cut off, you wouldn't expect it to bear any more fruit, right? Lots of us, if you have a yard, you probably have some sort of fruit tree in your yard. And if you have an orange tree or a lime tree or a lemon tree, like you prune it at times, but you would never cut off a branch, take it inside because it has oranges on it and think, now this is great. I don't have to walk outside and this thing's gonna keep producing oranges in here. Well, no, it's, it's not going to produce any more fruit. Why? Because it's been cut off from the source. Jesus is saying that when your life is cut off from me, 
No fruit will ever come from that. It will lead to fruit, fruitlessness, not more fruit coming in your life. It's this doctrine of what we call the union with Christ, that we are united as followers of Jesus to him, and that all of the benefits of salvation come not from ourselves, but only in so much as we are united to Jesus. And so how do we abide in him? Jesus gives us this clue of what the abiding life looks like in verse 7, when he says this, if you abide in me, and my words abide in you. See, we abide in Christ by abiding in his words. We abide in Christ by abiding in his words. Our spiritual habits, your spiritual habits, are a good measure of your spiritual dependence upon God. Your spiritual habits, or for some of us, our lack of spiritual habits, spiritual disciplines they are sometimes called, show and are often a good measure of our practical day-to-day dependence upon God. You know, think of it this way, if, if you are, and some of you in this room are, if you're in a powerful position, say, you know, you're a president of a company or a CEO, or, you know, you're in some high level of leadership that is kind of a high level up, you have certain people in your role that you depend on, and how often do you, re- the people who you truly depend on, you seek for input regularly. If not daily, weekly, you are meeting with them, looking to them for wisdom, for advice. You're not asking every person in their company for feedback. And someone who's way down on the bottom end of the totem pole could be like, oh yeah, the boss, he depends on me for everything. Like when's the last time you talked to him? I don't know, like a month ago? Like he, she doesn't depend on you, right? She depends on the people that she regularly interacts with. That's who she depends on. And some of us would be like, oh, I, I depend on God. I'm a follower of Jesus. When's the last time you really prayed? Like a month ago? I, I don't know. When's the last time you really sought God in scripture? I, I can't really remember, but I depend on God. No, our our spiritual habits reveal in our hearts where we are depending and where we are leaning on. See, the reality is dependent Christians do regularly what others only do occasionally. Dependent Christians on God practice regularly what other Christians only practice occasionally. See, all Christians pray, right? Every Christian prays. But for some of us, our prayer life is like, oh God, I'm late and there's traffic on 101. Would you clear it? And God's answer is always no, right? Like he's never answered that one. Like, no, I'm not gonna clear it. You're gonna be late. You gotta sit in traffic like everyone else, right? But we pray when something happens and a circumstance comes. I'm not saying not to do that. All Christians pray like that. But not all Christians set aside time to intentionally and desperately seek God and to seek his voice and to seek his presence in their lives. And there's a difference between just calling out God when we want him or need him versus setting aside time to be with and to seek God. All Christians read the Bible. If you're a part of this church, you at least get it every single Sunday because we preach out of the Bible every single week. All Christians read the Bible. Not every Christian fills their mind daily with the truth of scripture, with the hope that it would transform their minds, that they would be renewed into the image of Christ because the words of Christ are abiding and dwelling deep within their hearts. See, spiritual habits and disciplines, I wanna make sure we get this, they don't just mechanically produce fruit by themselves. It's not the reading of scripture automatically does it. And there's always exceptions to the rule, but these are the primary ways of staying connected to Jesus is through God's word and through prayer. This is how we practice the abiding life that he calls us to. And the daily habits we cultivate are rarely seen in effect in the short term. And that's why I think so many Christians struggle with practicing them. 
You know, if, if you were to be like, okay, I get it, I get it. I need to read my Bible more. And so you sat down tomorrow morning and you open up your Bible and you read two chapters and it was like this revelation came and you like said this amazing picture and there were no problems tomorrow. You'd be like, this is so easy. Well, what I have seen such spiritual growth in my five minutes of Bible reading. Why doesn't everyone do this? Right? Or you're like, I, 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 need to, I need to pray. And so you list out this long set of prayers and every single prayer request is answered like within five minutes and people start inundating with you. Did you pray for this? Because God just said, yes, did you pray? You'd be like, wow, this prayer thing is powerful. I should do more of this. But the reality is we don't see immediate results from our habits, right? If that happened, we all would do it, but it doesn't happen. The reality is if you read your Bible tomorrow, your day might be worse tomorrow, right? If you practice prayer tomorrow, Tuesday could be even worse than it was last week, because it's not about short term. But here's the thing, if you were to zoom out from just a day or a week, if you were to zoom out, at what would it look like if I dove into the Bible every single day for a year or two years? What would it look like over the course of the next 10 years if I start practicing a habit of prayer regularly in my life? The results would definitely be there, but we're so short term, we don't notice the results if we do or don't just day in and day out. So sometimes we can let them go. The reality of what Jesus is making sure his disciples cling to and hold on right as he's about to go to the cross is this, is that we never move past our need for Jesus. As Christians, as disciples, we never move past our need for Jesus. Notice again what he says in verse five. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If you're like me, like a type A, you're like, oh, come on, I could do something, Jesus. Come on, you're a little shortchanging me a little bit. But apart from me, you can do nothing. That we are helpless without Jesus. One of the, the, my favorite books in the New Testament it centers on our need as Christians throughout our whole life for Jesus is the book of Colossians. I love the book of Colossians because it's so focused on Jesus. And I love these phrases that, that Paul, the writer of it, brings up in the second chapter. He said, hey, it's not that you hate Jesus, but he said "There's that you've been deluded with plausible arguments. Another line he says is that people have brought things that have an appearance of wisdom. What was happening in that church is people like, okay, you have Jesus, but hey, there's something even better after Jesus. So leave, don't, don't like abandon Jesus, but come to this better thing that happens after Jesus. And that's why this, this book is so central that says, hey, no, no, what is the hope of glory? It's Jesus, it's Christ in you. That's it. There's an, it's not Jesus and then the next thing after that. It's, it's Jesus and Jesus still. See, Jesus is not just the means to salvation and we move on to other things to find growth and life and happiness after Jesus. Jesus is the means of salvation and the means of growth into all that he would have for us. We never move past a need for Jesus. He's the foundation of all of what life is. It comes back to him. Jesus is making sure his disciples understand that yes, I'm going to die. One day soon, I will be gone from you, but you still are a part of me. Remain in me, abide in me, for that's where life, that's where wholeness, that's where living is found, is as we remain attached and abide in Jesus. The third increase that Jesus desires for our life is found in starting in verse eight. He says this, By this, my father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. As the father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. 
If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. The third increase that Jesus desires in our lives is an increased obedience. An increased obedience in following after him. And he lays out this, this formula, Jesus says, which is seen so many times throughout scripture that I think is so helpful in understanding what obedience should look like in every single one of our lives. Notice how he grounds obedience on what, what does he ground is the root of obedience in verse nine. It's love. As the father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. Abide in this perfect, enduring love of Jesus that is true for every single one of his children, every single one who's been adopted into the family of God. We are to abide in his love. See, if we seek to follow obedience, if we seek to have obedience in our lives apart from being rooted in the love of Jesus, we quickly devolve into legalistic and self-righteousness works. That life is just about me earning and me doing and me showing how good I am. If it's not rooted in the love of God for you, even your intention, your well-intentioned acts of obedience aren't going to lead to the life that God would have for you. The foundation of it is to abide in his love. As Ephesians says, to understand the depth, the height, the width of the love that God has for you. How do we abide in God's love? For me, when I think about this, it's having unhurried, undistracted time with God with no agenda. That I have unhurried, undistracted time with God with no agenda. And I think of this because this is true of the closest relationships that I have in my life. Think of the people that you love, that you truly love, that you're the closest with. You have a lot of unhurried time with them. You're not on to the next thing. You're not going somewhere. You're just together. You're just together, you're doing things, but there's no like task list and that's, that's enough. You don't need to be doing something to love the person to spend time with them. It's just unhurried time together. Another way to think about it is undistracted time together. Have you ever had that conversation with someone and in the middle of it, you feel like you're like opening up and you're pouring out and like right as you're getting to like that part of your story that hurts, they're like, hold on a second, I'm getting a phone. How does that make you feel? Right, you're like, what the what's going on? You don't love me if, if like in the distraction. And how often are we like, all right, I'm going to take some time to pray. Hold on. I think I just got an email. Okay. Um, God, actually, hold on. Did I send that text message? And we are so quick to be distracted in our time with God. Then we need to learn what it looks like to set aside distractions. And we need to spend time with God with no agenda. We all get what it's like when someone has a relationship with us because they want to use us to get to something, right? Like they, they know us because they need us for something. They want to use us for something. So many Christians treat God the same way. I'll spend time with you because I need help with my kids. God, I'll spend time with you because I'm looking for a new job. God, I'll, I'll, I'll commit to you because I need you to do something for me on my agenda. When's the last time we showed up to God and said, God, I have no agenda. I just want what you want today. I have, I have nothing that I'm giving to you. I'm just here. There's no agenda that I have to push forward. I'm just unhurried, undistracted, and I'm here with you. That's what it looks like to abide in his love. And as we abide in his love, it will lead to obedience in our lives. Right? Jesus makes this clear. Verse 10. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my father's commandments and abide in his love. 
Love and obedience must go hand in hand. Love is not purely an emotional feeling, but a reorientation of our heart, will, and desires to follow after Jesus and what he wants for us. John, the apostle John, makes this idea of love and obedience going together so clear throughout his gospel and the books he writes later. John says this in 1 John chapter 5, 20, verses 2 and 3. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. Second John 1, 6. And this is love that we walk according to his commandments. This is the commandment just as you have heard from the beginning that you should walk in it. Or as he said just a little bit before this in John 14, verse 15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. See, we do a huge disservice to ourselves and our walk with God when we try and separate loving God from obeying God. We do a huge disservice, but we try and excuse away. We say we love God, but we want to cordon off areas of our life from obeying God. Like, oh no, I I love God. I just don't want God to tell me what to do with my sexuality. I want to deal with it how I please and whatever way I want the things will bring me happiness and joy. I don't want to obey him in that area. Oh no, I, I, I love God, but that whole forgiveness thing, I, I don't want to do that. Like, I just want to hold on to whatever I want to do. I love God, but like money? No, no, that's, that's my money. God doesn't have any right to tell me what I should do with this. I love God, but I don't want to obey him with that. And we can, in our minds, disassociate love God with obeying God. But Jesus says, you can't disassociate the two. If you love, you will obey. And when we lack obedience, it shows that we aren't loving like how sometimes we think we're loving. That love leads to obedience. But what's the result of obedience? The result of obedience is joy. Verse 11, these things I've spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. See, joy comes not from doing what we want, but from obedience to God. As we just read, God's commandments are not burdensome. And so you can think of it as an equation of how following Jesus can look like. We love God. We are rooted in the love of God for us. We understand who we are in Jesus, that we are loved unconditionally, not because of anything we've done or earned, but because we've so received the love of God, we're motivated to obey God. And we want to submit to in every area of our lives. And we're continuing to seek out of our love. God, where, where else do I need to obey? How else can I obey you? And when we live lives of obedience, we find joy. The joy is not in doing what I want, but joy is in obeying God rooted in the love of God. And that's the life that God would have for us, this life of joy. And it all comes as we start, and the root of it all is abiding in him, that it comes from abiding in him. My first job when I was right out of college, I got hired as a pastor, a youth pastor at a church when I was 22 years old. And so for the first very many years of, of my life in ministry, I was the youngest one by well over a decade on staff. And so because of that, I was the only pastor in my 20s. I not only was a youth pastor, I was also the backup tech guy because I was young. And I remember I had, a, I had a colleague who had been out of town. He had been traveling and he was back at church and he, he called me up and said, hey, I got a problem. My computer's not turning on. And I called, the, we had a tech guy. I called the tech guy and he's not available. So can you come and fix it? Because I'm in my 20s. So of course I can fix it in his thinking, right? Let's just put it this way. This person wasn't raised when computers were around. Let's put it that way, right? And so I'm like, well, I, I can try. 
right? So I walk in and it's his laptop sitting there. I go, I hit the power button. It didn't turn out. I was like, I was just making sure, right? Like you never know. And so I start talking to him. We're having a conversation, ask him about his trip, how things were and stuff. And then he looks up like five seconds, 10 seconds later and notices like the computer's on. And he's like this look of awe on his face. Like, how, how did you do it? How did you get my computer on? And I was like, well, I plugged it in. Like the battery was dead and I just plugged it in and now, now it works again. Like the batteries run low. You got to, oh, okay. thank you. Thank you. Thank you for helping, right? Genuine appreciation. For many of us, we've been trying to live our lives following Jesus disconnected from the source. For some of you this morning, your battery is running low. The power to follow Jesus isn't based on your own efforts. It's in staying connected to him. So are you connected to Jesus this morning? Are you abiding in him, abiding in his words, abiding in his love in your life? Jesus, we do thank you. We thank you that you are a God who loves us unconditionally, who came in our sin and died for us. God, and I pray that we would understand that following you is not just a result of efforts or intentions, but above all of, of staying connected to you, of abiding in you, abiding in your words, and abiding in the love that you have for us. God, I pray if there's anyone this morning who is not abiding and there's things in their life that are getting in the way, in the quietness of this moment, would you just confess those things to God? Maybe there's a sin in your life that's presenting, preventing you from abiding in Christ. Maybe there's a fear. Maybe there's a worry. Would you just take that this morning in the quietness of this moment, give it to him. Abide in his forgiveness for you. And every single one of us this morning needs to learn what it's like again every day to abide in Jesus' love. So this morning, would you just receive the love of Jesus for you? Would his love flow over this place this morning? Would your hearts know again that you were loved before the foundation of the world? That Jesus loved you so much, he died on the cross for you. Jesus has given up everything so that he could know you. Doesn't matter how you feel, doesn't matter what you think, that you are loved by Jesus this morning. Jesus, may we ever abide in you. May we abide in your love for us. God, would you cause our lives to be more fruitful? Not because of us, but because of you. Not for our fame, but for your glory. Teach us what it looks like to abide in you, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening. Continue the conversation with us on social media. Never miss a message and subscribe to our podcast on iTunes.